in the heart of Pendleton, Indiana, where life slowly rolled along. Seemingly predictable and comfortable, David Fouts passed the time. On his work days, he delved into the tech universe, working for a company called Salesforce. When his face wasn't lit by the glow of computer screens, he found joy riding his bicycle, spending time with his four adopted greyhounds, his newlywed wife, and his children. It was April of 2020. The scent of lilacs in the air carried with it the promise of summer, and David was having a conversation that mirrored the simplicity he enjoyed. He spoke with his stepdaughter, Carrie Gentry, about how much he'd enjoy putting together bikes for her kids. He wanted to make sure they were safely and solidly built. For David, bikes weren't just for kids. He was passionate about them and had been for years. He liked to compete in endurance races and was a leading member of a local endurance cycle group. That casual chat about bikes, David's eyes reflecting his passion for them, and life was a memorable one for Carrie. A conversation that might not normally be remembered becomes something much more when it's the last conversation you have with someone. It becomes significant. In some cases, it becomes cherished. In others, it's filled with regrets, wishing more had been said. Five days after that happy bike discussion with his stepdaughter, a woman walking her dog would come across David's decomposing body. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. Thanks for lending me your ear. Today's case takes place in Indiana, one of the 50 nifty United States. It's also my home state. I saw a shirt that someone was wearing once that said, Come for the corn, stay for the soybeans, and I had to chuckle. This state is blanketed with corn and soybeans. Today's case doesn't feature either of those, but mushrooms are on the menu. Let's get started. David Fout's body was found shortly after 3.30 p.m. on April 24th. There was no cell phone, no wallet, or any identification found, and his pants pockets were turned inside out. Detectives began their investigation, following clues that unfurled like the winding roads David loved to ride. Authorities believed right from the start that the body had been moved after death, but other than that, and without any major damage done to the body, the cause of death was unknown. There were no signs of violence on the body, no gunshot or knife wounds, no blunt force trauma. Nothing obvious to indicate foul play other than the fact that the body's feet were bare and clean. He hadn't walked onto that crime scene himself. Police weren't sure it was a homicide, but they'd treat it like one anyway. They wondered if his death had been an accidental overdose, a heart attack, or something worse. His body was transported to the morgue at Riverview Hospital. While at the morgue, digital images were taken, clothing was removed for evidence, and further forensic measures were completed. At this time, two lacerations were discovered about his body. Each hand had a laceration under the thumbs in the fatty area. These cuts appeared to have been made by something sharp. Investigators also noted what appeared to be glue or tape residue around the wrists and ankles. The width of the residue marks were consistent with that of duct tape. There were small abrasions on the back of one ankle, indicating that the body had been dragged. No other obvious damage was noted about the body. The pinkish-colored shirt was removed from the left wrist area of David's hand and examined. 
There was a hole in the bottom of the shirt that seemed like it had been cut, and they also noted that the neckline of the shirt looked like it had been cut, but not removed completely. The investigators were able to identify the body as David Michael Fouts, a 50-year-old man whose home was about 20 minutes from where his body was found. They were able to find him fairly quickly because his fingerprints were in the system. He had had criminal charges placed against him for domestic violence. The autopsy also proved what the investigators had suspected. The lividity marks, or where the blood had settled after his death, didn't match the position in which they found his body. He had definitely been moved after he died. His stomach contained what appeared to be mushrooms, fairly intact chunks of fungus. These are preserved, but the why and the how of his death were still stuck in the shadows, waiting on toxicology tests. The six-week wait yielded no positive results and shed no light on the cause of death. But while they waited for those results, the investigators had started talking to those closest to David, beginning with his wife, Katrina. Very early in the morning on April 25th, investigators visited her home after identifying David's deceased body. As soon as they broke the news to her, Katrina began sharing troubling details about David's troubled mental state. She said that he had threatened suicide multiple times recently and expressed the belief that everyone would be better off without him. She said she felt bad for not doing more to help him. Even so, Katrina didn't have many good things to say about David. They'd only married the year before, but since then, Katrina said he had cheated on her. Annie had been charged with domestic battery, and a few days later was issued a no-contact order. He broke that order, and further charges were laid on him. Both those charges were still pending when David died. But Katrina had charges, too. Hers were for false informing. When investigators inquired about potential threats to David, Katrina was quick to mention a man who had visited their house on several occasions. She had already described her relationship with David as tumultuous. She explained that, yes, David had an affair the previous year, but they were attempting to reconcile. According to Katrina, this man had a connection with the woman involved in David's affair and harbored a serious grudge against him. Though she didn't know the man's name, she was able to provide a detailed description. He was a white man with blue or green eyes, clean-cut and well-spoken. She suggested he had an educated background. The man had short, well-groomed hair and a robust physique, standing at six feet tall and weighing approximately 225 to 250 pounds. That would be about 1.8 meters tall and 110 kilograms. She said he'd come to their house four times. During the most recent encounter, the man told her that she had nothing to fear from him. Despite feeling threatened, Katrina never called the police, explaining that David didn't want her to involve law enforcement. It would have been embarrassing for everyone involved. Obviously, the police would need to follow up on this lead. Interestingly, even though they'd asked Katrina if she knew where David's phone was and her response had been no, his phone was found during a cursory search of the couple's home. Katrina's response to this was, oh, she forgot, and that it had been there the whole time, right where he normally kept it. She wasn't worried about him not having his phone, because she thought he had left it there intentionally. It was around this time that Katrina was asked to come to the station to be formally interviewed. 
they asked her to start at the beginning and tell them about the last time they had seen him. She said she woke up about 6.45 a.m. on April 21, 2020. David was already awake, greeted her, and poured her some coffee before returning to his home office. He was working from home. It was 2020. Everybody seemed to be working from home at that time. She had plans to meet her father and a man named Terry Hopkins later that day. Terry was described as a close friend of the family who cared for Katrina's father. He was also a retired police officer. At the last minute, her father decided not to leave the house, so Terry would be coming to see Katrina alone. Terry Hopkins asked if he could meet with Katrina at their second home, one they called the country house, to avoid any conflicts with David Fouts. Katrina said David and Terry didn't get along either. In fact, they couldn't stand each other. She explained that she left Pendleton to meet Terry Hopkins at around 6 or 7 p.m. on April 21st. She asked him to meet her at a local grocery store in Pendleton, and then he could follow her to the country house. Once there, they spent a friendly evening together, but she clarified that Terry was like a father figure to her. They slept in separate rooms, and they only slept there because Terry had some health issues that had flared up, and Katrina was worried about his ability to drive. During this time period, she had sent several texts to David, explaining the situation with Terry, but she hadn't got any replies. Though she and Terry had both fallen asleep, they later woke up and went their separate ways. Terry was feeling better and had wanted to get back to Katrina's father, and Katrina went home to Pendleton around 3 or 3.30 in the morning on the 22nd. When she arrived home, Katrina discovered the inside garage door was open and the garage light was on. She let her dogs out to use the bathroom, and not wanting to wake David up, she lay down and fell asleep on the couch. The next morning she woke up about 7.30 and searched for David in the house, but he was nowhere to be found. She put her thinking cap on, and the first thought she had was that he'd gone for mental health treatment based on a recent conversation where he suggested she might need to contact his work about him seeking help for his mental health again. So she did just that. She called his boss and let him know that he needed a few days off. The officers decided there was something off about Katrina. She was so quick to suggest suicide and a man who may have wanted to hurt David. When they followed up on the big man lead, they found that both the man and the woman had solid alibis. They decided it was time for a search warrant. They wanted to see the inside of David and Katrina's homes. When they waited for those to come through, they interviewed Katrina's daughter, who had spent the evening with the couple only three days before David disappeared. She said David had seemed like his usual self, but she couldn't believe that Katrina hadn't told her that David had gone to rehab or for mental health treatment. In fact, in the several days he'd been gone, Katrina made no reference of him being gone at all. She also thought it was strange that Terry Hopkins would leave Katrina's father alone overnight just to see Katrina. The investigators couldn't figure out how this seemingly healthy active man had died. David had no health concerns. There were no signs of strangulation, no diseased heart tissue, so maybe he was poisoned. They were granted a search warrant and searched for drugs in Katrina's house, but found no drugs that could be tied to David's death. However, when Katrina's phone was studied, the alarm bells began blaring. 
In the days David had been gone, she never called or texted him. Not once. But there had been an awful lot of messages between her and Terry. Over the last month, there were so many more messages to Terry than there were to her own husband. Worse, the few days after Katrina's interview with police, they found that she had searched Indiana homicide laws, crime of passion laws, what evidence is needed to secure a murder warrant, and how to pass a lie detector test. Further digital forensics showed searches about overdosing and poisonous mushrooms. They also found a screenshot of another poisonous mushroom known as the Destroying Angel, or Amanita verosa. The image was captioned that it was among the deadliest plants known to mankind. They sent the contents of David's stomach to a specialist to be analyzed and they began to investigate retired officer Terry Hopkins. He had made some unusual purchases on the date that David went missing, and in the days before David's body was found. He went to a harbor freight store and bought microfiber cleaning cloths, duct tape, six-inch diagonal cutters, utility knives and box cutters, cleaning gloves. Then, two days later, he bought two blue tarps, a lifting sling, a pack of AA batteries, a pack of zip ties, and a hydraulic lift cart. It seems that Terry Hopkins chose to remain silent because I couldn't find much about what he said during his interview. However, during the course of contact with Terry, the investigators noted that he had some injuries to his body. He had a scratch on his nose, a large open wound on the top of his right arm, and open wounds on the backs of both of his hands. The scratches on his right hand appeared to be consistent with fingernail scratches. In addition, he had areas of bruising on his chest, upper torso, under his arm, and in several other places. His explanation for this was that he slipped and fell in his garage. He fell forward and hit his chest. A text from Terry to Katrina in the early morning hours of April 24th seemed to corroborate this fall. During a search of David and Katrina's country home, police located multiple vehicles in their garage. There was a Nissan Rogue and a Volkswagen. Terry Hopkins used the Rogue to transport Katrina's father when he couldn't drive himself, and the other was used by Katrina. Police also discovered a hydraulic lift with a piece of cardboard on top of it in the garage. A mat for the hydraulic lift was then found in the trunk of the Rogue. Katrina had told police that Terry had purchased the hydraulic lift to help her move items from her garage into the house. She said they had put it together on April 23rd, after David had gone missing. But when a DNA analysis was performed on the hydraulic lift mat, it contained samples of David's DNA. The cardboard also contained blood and DNA from Terry and Katrina. In addition, police found multiple items of interest in the Rogue, including a variety of tools, a box cutter knife, and zip ties. Also, receipts showed that when Terry had purchased these supplies, he had also purchased two pairs of cleaning gloves, size small and medium. In Katrina's car, they found a revolver wrapped in plastic, and they found a walkie-talkie in each vehicle. They were the same make and model and tuned to the same channel and subchannel. The box cutter knife was found in the vehicle that Terry drove, and it was later tested and it had small pink fibers on one side of the blade. Fibers that seemed to match the t-shirt David had been found with wrapped around his wrist. 
According to the probable cause affidavit, the mushrooms in David's stomach were analyzed, and Dr. M. Catherine Aim from Purdue University pointed fingers at wild mushrooms that grow in the area. One, called Leucocybe canatum, was known to produce toxins such as muscarin. She used DNA analysis to identify the mushroom with 100% certainty. She said that symptoms of muscarin ingestion can include anything from sweating, salivating, and uncontrollable tears to more severe and potentially lethal reactions. Without medical intervention, a person's heart rate can slow, breathing can become distressed, and a coma could follow. According to Dr. Aim, the symptoms of muscarin poisoning usually begin about 30 minutes after ingestion. Based on toxicity level ranges and muscarin content per mushroom, Dr. Aim concluded that a lethal dose of muscarin could be found in between 2 and 15 ingested slices. Because David had at least 7 slices in his stomach, Dr. Aim concluded that the amount of mushroom consumed was enough to be lethal. Urine taken from David's body was sent in for muscarin testing. The results came back negative, but upon further consultation with Dr. Aim, she explained to investigators that it's not that surprising that muscarin wasn't detected. She said that it has a half-life of only eight hours, which means that half the chemical is gone after eight hours, and half of what's left is gone in another eight hours. That means that it's undetectable after 72 hours. So any muscarin that would have been in David's body would likely have deteriorated by the time the body was found and the urine samples were obtained. The good news, though, was that detectives now had something to build upon. On a bit of a side note, I found some sources that said this mushroom wasn't deadly. I personally am choosing to listen to the professional, and I won't go near it. This mushroom is sometimes called a white dome cap, and it can be easily mistaken for another mushroom that is very deadly. The extremely deadly one is called Amanita varosa, or destroying angel. The symptoms of poisoning often don't appear until 6 to 24 hours after eating it and include vomiting, diarrhea, and cramps. Later, kidney or liver dysfunction occurs and it can lead to death. It's possible that Katrina fed David the white dome cap mushrooms thinking that they were actually the destroying angel. And when David didn't get sick enough or die fast enough, they killed him by other means, which were unclear. Dr. David Sozio, a forensic pathologist, would later testify that he couldn't rule out poisoning or asphyxia, but concluded that David had died of homicide by unspecified means. In time, investigators, armed with cell phone data and tower pings, pieced together a crime line for the evening of April 21st to the 25th, when David's body was found. The first night was filled with cryptic exchanges and suspicious movements. Terry and Katrina were placed in the same area, although Terry's phone had been shut off for some time, and Katrina's GPS system had also been shut off. The next day, those purchases were made and were indicative of needing to move something heavy. And finally, 15 hours before David's body was found, video surveillance cameras caught a red vehicle similar to the Nissan Rogue that Terry had access to, driving by the spot where David's body was found on four separate occasions. It's believed that David either voluntarily or was forced to consume poisonous mushrooms. He may have had some reaction to the mushrooms, but not enough to completely incapacitate him, 
based on what appeared to be scratch marks on Terry's arms and bruising, which indicated a struggle. The investigator who submitted the affidavit wrote that Katrina Fouts called him on May 26th, at which point he told her that she had to know that we knew that she had killed David Fouts. I know, was her response. The investigator went on, saying, We just don't know why it happened. And Katrina replied, I know. The motive wasn't clear, but it might have been for love or money. Katrina had been added to David's life insurance before they were engaged, and more recently, he had added her to his retirement account. Some believe that Katrina and Terry were secret lovers. The texts between them suggested they were close friends and were often signed, Love your kid from another mother, or signed Pops if they came from Terry. Katrina was 54, Terry was 65, and David was 50 at the time the murder occurred. That's just for context. Certainly, Terry was much closer to the same age as Katrina than he would have been to her father. After Katrina admitted her involvement in the murder, the investigator asked her if she had thought about how she was going to tell her children. She replied that she had thought about it and that she wanted to have them meet with him at the sheriff's office so that she and the detective could tell them together. She then called several more times, sometimes expressing gratitude that the authorities were allowing her some time to tie up loose ends and to get her ducks in a row so she didn't have those things hanging over her head. The loose ends included securing home health care for her father, moving him closer to other family members, and getting new homes for her cats and dogs. She told the investigator several times that she wasn't going anywhere and that when the time came, she'd turn herself in. She didn't. But on September 17, 2020, the state arrested her and charged her with murder, conspiracy to commit murder, failure to report human remains, and false informing. When the police arrested her, she was in possession of a bag containing $40,000, which was about what David had in his bank account. She didn't learn her lesson the first time, and when they searched her cell phone, she had the following web search history. Know your rights. Spy escape. How to disappear completely. How to move away and never be found again. Fake driver's license. USA. So much for turning herself in, eh? David's friends remembered him as a social dynamo, known for connecting with everyone he met. He was described as the best grandfather by Katrina's own daughter. He extended his generosity by actively participating in cycling events with a local cycling group called Roll Fast. He was a skilled racer and an avid volunteer. His enthusiasm reached beyond the racetracks to charitable causes, notably suicide prevention. As the wheels of justice turned like the bike tires on David's beloved bike, the familiar hum of gravel meeting the asphalt was replaced by the bang of a gavel. The judge sentenced Katrina Louise Fouts to 34 years behind bars for conspiring to murder David. As for Terry Hopkins, I wasn't able to find nearly as much information about the investigation into his involvement in the murder, but he was arrested and charged with murder, conspiracy to commit murder, and failure to report human remains. I'm honestly surprised that the media didn't dive into this case and Terry Hopkins more, especially since he was a former officer. 
He'd worked for the police force for 33 years. I'm honestly surprised that the media didn't dive into this case and Terry Hopkins more, especially since Terry was a former officer. His trial was scheduled to begin on April 18, 2022, but he died two months before his court date. Now, you longtime listeners will know that this case is a little shorter than I normally do. I found it after listening to a podcast from Outside Magazine about mushrooms and eating poisonous mushrooms, and I thought, I wonder if I could find any murderous mushrooms. I found this case first, but I also found another. So this shorter episode is sort of part one of two. Stay tuned for a second case, which is currently under investigation in Australia. It's unsolved, but it's very interesting. In the meantime, head on over to Facebook, Instagram, or Patreon if you want to see pictures to go with this episode. And if you have a minute, give the podcast a nice rating and review, or tell a friend. Even better, become a Patreon. I'd love to have you on board. As always, I'd like to wish you all fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds.